Thank you. You may be seated. A number of years ago, I served as a witness in a trial. Anyone here ever serve as a witness in a trial? Um, it, was, it was an unusual experience. Um, having never done it before, uh, I was asked by the defense attorney if I would testify to the case, and uh, because of my position as a pastor and the circumstances that uh, were being dealt with there, um, I had an obligation to do that simply out of, uh, uh, out of my responsibilities, and of course I said yes, and, and uh, he kind of walked me through the kind of questions he was going to ask, and I kind of went through the, the answers I was going to give, but it was the day of uh, the actual trial, and as a witness, you can't be inside the actual courtroom. You have to be outside of the courtroom, and I have to wait outside. It was kind of a nerve-wracking experience because, I mean, when you're, when you're in court, it's a pretty serious thing, isn't it? Um, you don't take it lightly. And the other thing is, you know, being a pastor, sometimes people might want to twist things or push things. And, and as a Christian, sometimes people might want to uh, ask questions that really undermine and trick you and fool you. And that, so I was a little concerned about, you know, what was going to happen in this thing. So um, I went in and the defense attorney, um, you know, ushered me up. And of course, I had to put my hand on the Bible and um, um, make sure that, uh, that I was willing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And um, then we were off. And uh, the defense attorney asked me a bunch of questions, and I gave the answers that, that fit uh, his questions. And then it was time for the prosecutor. And it was, I was kind of taken back because the prosecutor came at me hard. Um, and, you know, it's like I, I'm just testifying about some basic facts, and it was just kind of strange that they came at me hard. Uh, but they did. They came at me hard. And they asked me some questions from a, from a different angle. And uh, I was really just kind of concerned about, okay, so what do I need to say here and how do I need to say it? And the thing that, that helped me through that was simply this, tell what? The truth. Just answer the truth of the question. And in doing that, I was able to be you know, dismissed and I was done. I didn't have to go back. But it was somewhat of a nerve-wracking experience. I almost felt like I was on trial. You know what I'm saying? You're kind of you know, just really under this pressure. But we had to tell the truth. That was what I had to do, and that's what I rested on. And as a witness, that's what I am supposed to be doing. I am supposed to be telling the truth about the facts that I am aware of. And as we come to this gospel, it's all about the truth. And it's all about that truth being evidence so that those who are reading this gospel ultimately will believe, and then once they are believers, they ultimately will have life. That's what John says is his theme, is his purpose, that we would have life. And as we come to this prologue, if you remember, the first 18 verses here are really a, a snapshot um, again, if you watch some show on TV at the beginning, they just flash a bunch of different things up there and kind of give you a taste of what's to come. There's a sense in which that is what is going on here. There's, a, there's this picture of a variety of themes that will take place in this book, and there is this introduction of Jesus, the subject of this great gospel. And in particular, verses 1 through 5 that we looked at last week deal with Christ in eternity. Um, talking there about the Word. In the beginning was the Word, right? This is Christ in eternity, and it's really a realm that, 
that uh, no other gospel writer goes to. John decides, I'm going to go back into eternity past. As we pick up at verse 6, though, we're starting to now see the story unfolded in this prologue as it relates to Christ coming to this earth and the activity of his ministry on this earth. And, uh, of course, we're going to see here that John is the witness, but we're ultimately going to see the way, and that will be next week when we study that. So join with me right now as we look at verse 6. It says in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And the question is, who is this John? Is this John who is writing the book? The answer is no. We know that clearly uh, by virtue of what takes place later in this book as well as the other Gospels. This man that was sent from God is none other than John, who is also known as the Baptist. Now, he is a pivotal figure in um, biblical history. And remember, John the Baptist was the result of a miraculous birth. An angel appeared to uh, Zechariah and said, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a child. And Zechariah did what? You remember? He laughed. Ha! <laughs> you know, we are old. We can't have children anymore. But you know what? God performed a miracle. And of course, Zechariah was struck with dumbness there. And uh, ultimately, that child was born. But that child was and is John the Baptist in this story, this unfolding story. The other Gospels tell us of that. But it certainly was a miraculous birth. And John the Baptist's birth was a preparation for the birth of the Son of God, the birth of Jesus. In this Gospel, though, John is introduced really as the preparation for the ministry of Jesus and for the coronation of Jesus and for what he has ultimately come to do. So he is a significant link in the ongoing progression of the gospel of God through Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 16 and verse 16. Something very important is said there about John the Baptist. Luke chapter 16 and verse 16. It tells us there, it says that the law and the prophets were until John referring to John the Baptist. One of the things that we need to understand with John, being a pivotal figure and a significant link, he is that in the sense that he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was this transition prophet, you might want to say, from the old order to the new order. He was this one that was ushering in this, this new emphasis, this new dispensation, if you want to say it, the era of God working uniquely through Israel as a nation was coming to an end. And this new era of God working uniquely through what was going to be called the church was beginning. And this new era had a new king, a, a Messiah, a perfect prophet. So here is this man by the name of John the Baptist. But we also note here that it says here that he was sent from God. So he was specifically equipped and specifically commissioned by God for special ministry to usher in this Messiah. Now, John was unique. Um, 
He had a unique role. He had a preparation role, but he simply was a man. I think it's interesting here. It says there was a man sent from God. It doesn't say a prophet. It says a man. Just think about this. Ultimately, God is going to put the burden of responsibility of ministry and witness on your shoulders and my shoulders. It takes a man. It takes a woman. It takes a boy. It takes a girl to humble themselves before God and to be used by him. So we move now from the man, who is this witness? The next statement here is this. Let's look at the witness. And the question here is, what did this man, John, come to do? Verse 7, we're told that he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all men might believe through him. So this witness was sent to witness um, and I have here listed for you um, this, this kind of stack of, of data, and it's there in your handout, obviously, so you don't have to copy it down, but John the Baptist was sent as an additional pointer, this is important, as an additional pointer to the truth. The reality is, friends, that people who are bound in sin are in such darkness that they need someone to tell them about the light. They need someone to speak. They need someone to point them to the light. So in John's gospel, because his goal is life that comes through belief, John begins this long line of witnesses that are to be called on to testify to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So as you look at this list, imagine all of these witnesses sitting outside the courtroom ready to come in and to testify evidence about who Jesus is. In this gospel, specifically, this word witness is associated and spoken of about the Godhead, about Scripture, about certain groups of people and individuals. And, of course, you have you know, the Godhead listed there. Jesus testifies to his, himself. The Father does. The Holy Spirit does. The disciples do. A crowd does. That's the story of Lazarus and him being raised from the tomb and from the dead. Um, then there's the Samaritan woman, and ultimately John. And the point here is this, that this gospel is full of witnesses. And John is going to lay them out in anecdotal form, just to reinforce once again that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, or he is the Christ, the Son of God. So all these witnesses are pushing the reader, that would be us, to consider the evidence so that they will believe and that they will have life. Now, we looked at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We began our, our time together this morning with Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right at the beginning of the service. You may want to turn there, Acts 1, 8. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He might even call them the apostles then. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, the disciples, the apostles now were, were sent out by Jesus to be witnesses and to testify about who he is, what he has done, and the great news of the gospel that comes through him. So there's a, a need here. There's ultimately a witness that has taken place here. Um, but it doesn't stop at Acts 1.8. In fact, turn now to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We could go to a number of different places. We could go to 
you know, the great commission, commission passage, um, we could go to the sowing passage, so goes out to sow. Ultimately, the point is this, God's children have been given a responsibility to testify and to be witnesses of the evidence of the gospel and to open their mouths and to share that truth. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 and following. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we what? Proclaim. That's testify. That's shout out. That's, that's herald. Okay? Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this I toil, Paul says, struggling with all uh, my energy that he works powerfully with, uh, powerfully works within me. The, the point here is this. We have been given this great responsibility now to carry on this, this long line of witnesses, to be witnesses ourselves for his glory. Now, Certainly there are people who are uniquely gifted as evangelists, right? You probably know some people. Maybe you are that person. Some people can just, you know, they can walk into a restaurant and it just seems like, you know, they can talk freely about the things of God. And you, you sit around and you're like, I wish, I just wish I could have that. But some people have that unique evangelistic gift, right? And the tendency for us sometimes, for we who don't have it, I don't have that. All right? And I know people that do. Is, is just to really kind of say to yourself, man, I, you know, how in the world do I do this? How, how, I, w- I would love to be able to do that, but you know, it just seems awkward and strange. But that being said, we are not free from the responsibility of being you know, verbal and testifying about the gospel. We are sent with a message to be a witness about who Jesus Christ is. So God takes a man, like I said before, he takes a woman and breathes life into us. He gives us eternal life. He gives us abundant life, but he also calls us to be, be ones that reflect the glory of the gospel into this world. He calls us, in other passages, ambassadors, and ultimately, we are witnesses for his glory. Now, we have a story to tell. If you are a child of God, you have a story to tell. Last Sunday night, we celebrated the ordinance of baptism. There were three people that went through baptism. All right? And each of them shared a testimony. Each of them shared a little bit about their story. Let me ask you a question. Were you encouraged by the story? Those of you that were there, absolutely. We all have a story to tell. We all have a story about where we were walking in our lives and maybe the darkness that we were in or the blindness that we were experiencing at that time and how God broke in and how he changed our lives eternally because of his gospel. Now, it's, it's, it's all different because we live different lives, but it is all the same because it's the same gospel. And that story is our story, and we are called to testify of that story. It's the same story that John is talking about in his great gospel here. So when we testify before the court of mankind, we tell our story along with the story. The story being the gospel, our story about how the gospel penetrated our darkness and caused us to see. So the reality is, friends, you are a man or a woman with a message if you are a child of God. Now, 
We're also told here, though, in verse 8, he was not the light. John talked about himself. I am not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Here we have a timeless formula for being a faithful witness. What does it mean, then, to be a witness, to be a child of God and to be a witness? What does it mean? What does it look like? Well, right here in verse 8, we have this timeless formula, and I think it's helpful for us here to just pause a little bit and think about what does it mean to be a faithful witness? If we are all called to do that, if we're we're in this long line of witnesses, what does it mean to be a faithful witness? Verse 8 tells us, first of all, we must have a healthy view of self. John says, I am not the light, right? In other words, when you're talking to someone about the things of God, don't have a high view of yourself to think that somehow you are important or to think, you know what, it's really, really fortunate that this person is talking to me right now because I know the gospel, because I'm really one who can truly help this person. Now, there's a sense in which there is truth to that by saying if you are one who studied the gospel and you have the tools and you can share it, I mean, we're, we're told to always be ready, Right? But we're talking here about this issue of pride. Let me just, just step back a little bit. When I was in, in, in college, as someone preparing for ministry, we had the responsibility every week of turning in a sheet of paper that listed how many people we shared the gospel with, if anyone got saved, if anyone made a decision, blah, 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 blah. And there was always this sense in, in certain circumstances with certain guys, it was like, well, you know, I, I got five people saved this week, you know really? You know, well, I got six, you know, and, you know, or, you know, I witnessed to nine people, you know, and, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to beef up your numbers, you know, so you go witness to a tree and, you know, Mr. Bark, you know, or whoever it might be, you know, just, just because you're trying to beef up your numbers, it's like, it's crazy. We've missed the point. Being a faithful witness is not about us, and how gifted we are, and how many notches we have on our belt. God is the one, ultimately, that will get the increase. We just water. But we have to be faithfully watering, (laughs) sowing, watering, coming alongside. You hear someone else that's like, hey, you know, yeah, someone went to a church years ago, and hurt someone, yeah, I just, I'm not sure if I, you know, okay, well, you know what, hey, I've been going to church for a long time, and I felt like you, and Here's what God did in my life, and you're, you're just putting more water on that seed that was sown, and someone else comes along behind you, okay? That's all absolutely necessary, and it's a beautiful picture of what takes place, but it's not about you. What does John the Baptist himself say? He says, he must increase, and I must what? Decrease, okay? So we must have a healthy view of self from the perspective of, you know, I'm not the issue here. It's not about me. Secondly, a verbal profession. He came to bear witness. And the idea here of this word witness is that you are opening up your mouth, that you are verbally saying some things about the facts. Now listen, we must be careful that we're not drawn into, uh, I mean, it's certainly a contemporary mindset that basically says we, we just need to live our Christian lives before people. And people will see that and you know, they'll be impressed and um, they'll get saved. And we do need to live our lives before people, right? But that is not sufficient. In fact, it is, it is a 
failure on the part of the church to even promote that as a standard means by which we are to evangelize. And there certainly was. I remember back in the 80s, I remember it being pushed. It was called friendship evangelism, although it can come under different names. But the idea was just, just live your life before people and God will take care of the rest. And so people were satisfied by just keeping their mouth shut. But the whole idea of being a witness, I mean, what would it be like if I just went to the witness stand and they asked me questions and I just kind of said, you know, just did my best to look good and be nice and kind. And you've got to say something. You've got you to talk about the facts. You've got to talk about what's going on. So Paul Little um, may not have heard too much about him. He's a big writer in England especially on the subject of evangelism. In his book, How to Give Away Your Faith, um, this is what he says about living the Christian life. He says it's pre-evangelism. It is necessary as a backdrop for what is most important, a verbal profession or testifying as a witness. So yes, live your Christian life before people so that they can see your good works, but then you come along with the verbal profession as well. Okay, you don't, you don't leave that part out. The word witness is a legal word and as such necessitates some kind of a verbal affirmation or explanation of the facts so that justice can be meted out. So a verbal witness here means that we are to articulate the facts about Jesus and what we call the gospel, who Jesus is, what he came to do, why he came to do it, how he has been working this plan before the creation of the world, what his sacrifice on the cross means, how to become a child of God through uh, repentance and faith, and on and on and on. These are all part of of the the declarations and the affirmations and the the, the verbal uh, statements that we can be breathing into people's lives so they can hear the truth of the gospel. You can't live those realities out. You can't just live your life and expect someone to say, ah, oh, Jesus went to a cross and died for my sins. Ah, okay, just because you brought some cookies over. You know, you might say, well, they're in the shape of a cross. And, you know, and... No, just, we're so afraid sometimes just to verbalize. Okay? So it, it does need to be verbally expressed, a verbal profession. And then the third thing here is this. Um, a divine solution, all right? Jesus is the light. He says he was, uh, he was not, John is not the light, but came to bear witness, witness about the light. And we know because of the context that Jesus, the word who is life, is also the light. The answer to man's problems is Jesus. Now, there's a lot of lights in our culture. There's a lot of solutions, but then quotes. A lot of potential answers to man's difficulty and struggle. But um, what we have is we have the reality and the truth of the light. Get this, a divine solution, because it is a divine solution, needs to be communicated urgently. And it's an urgency, though, that is patient and rooted in God's sovereignty let me explain what I'm saying. When I, again, when I was younger in my Christian walk and in the circles that I was in, there was almost a salesman approach to sharing the gospel. You know, if you can get your foot in, you know, and you, they'll, they'll talk about God, great, you know, hold them there. And then you've got you to gotta get your other foot in. You've got to talk about the, the gospel and the fact that Jesus died on the cross. And, you know, but don't, whatever you do, don't leave 
until you've called for the question, until they've prayed a prayer. So there's this great pressure on me and others who were part of that kind of Christian culture to, to get, you know, to get the job done, to, to have the product sold, so to speak. Now listen, I don't close the deal. <laughs> God closes the deal. And this is why I can be urgent but patient in the sovereignty of God. The urgency is because the reality of Scripture says that this person dies without Christ They're facing an eternity in hell. The sovereignty part of it says, but God knows all that, and I have a responsibility to share, but I don't have to somehow even be tempted to manipulate anything just to get an answer. Because many times those manipulated answers are insufficient. (laughs) And we have people that believe that they're children of God who are walking around having believed in a deficient or faulty gospel. It's much better to be patient and to trust God and allow the truth of God's word and the gospel to settle in and to see what he's going to do. And and the beautiful thing here, guys, is this, is that we get to be a part of what God is doing. We open our mouths, we share the truth, and we say, you know what, God, you're, you're in this and we'll just see what you're doing with this person. It's not like I have to do this and say, see, God, I did it for you. It's like, no. I am being faithful to be responsible to you, God, and I'm going to be patient in your sovereignty to see that this person comes to know you. Two completely different perspectives. And I tell you what, when God revealed that to me, it was just like this load lifted from me. It wasn't like, okay, don't open your mouth anymore because God's doing it all. No, we're called to be witnesses. But we're called to be witnesses that are resting in the sovereignty and the providence of God. And there's a great patience there that we can have with people as they wrestle with the truths of God. Hey, listen, you didn't come to know the Lord just bam like that. That's probably not how it happened. It was probably over some time and things you were wrestling with and you heard the truth of the gospel and you went home and you wrestled with it, you talked about it. And for most people, it was more of a journey. It's, it's not just kind of this sudden thing. It does happen that some people kind of get this sudden, you know, sudden conversion experience. I don't want to knock that. But for most people... You know, they're, they're, they weren't looking to be saved. But there was this process that they went through. In fact, many people were still antagonistic to the gospel, but the gospel was shared, and then boom, you know, over time, something happened in their heart, and it changed. My, my life is an example of that. I grew up in a Christian home. My, both my parents were godly parents, and they would even have a Bible study in my home. It was usually on like a Thursday night, and I would be upstairs with my friends, and we'd be laughing I mean, I was just completely blind and hardened to the church and to the gospel. And I remember when I came to the States and I went to a school and I was going to that school primarily because they had a soccer program and that's a whole other story. But it was a school that happened to be a Christian school and it was a chapel time and I heard the gospel once again because I'd heard it many times before. But this time it was like an arrow just went It's you, Rod. I want you. Boom. It was over a process of time that God spoke then finally into my heart and said, now I'm calling you to me. And you know what? My parents were patient. Other people were patient. And so we should also be patient with what God is doing um, in the lives of other people and trust that God knows what is best, but be faithful to 
be witnesses, all right? So have a healthy view of self. This is not about you. Open your mouth, a verbal profession, and then recognize that Jesus is really the solution that people are looking for, nothing else. Now, what is the message? Number three, the message, or what is the message the witness then testifies? When you're on that stand and you're going to be witnessing now, you're going to be testifying, what is it that you're saying? Verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. So first of all, the light is true, right? The light is true. Now the implication here is that there are lights that are what? False. So people can be pursuing lights, I'm going to say revelations, ideas that are in our culture, in society, that seem to be the right pursuits. You know, uh, one of the big ones over the past century or so is this whole idea of, of progress, the pursuit of a better life. Look how, look how industry has given us so many other tools, so many other resources. More recently, it has been technology. Look at the progress we have. This is wonderful. All the experiences we can have because of progress. Prosperity is another false light. The pursuit of pleasure is a false light. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it, is it a bad thing for us to progress in our lives, learning more, growing more, having more awareness of natural sciences and things like that. Is there, is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. Is there anything wrong with, with God, you know, for getting, a, getting a step up at work and getting a little bit more income? Is there anything wrong with that? It's probably, hopefully, a result of you being a hard worker and, you know, demonstrating that in the workplace. Is, is pleasure an evil thing? Absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, even, even Jesus took the disciples up into the mountains and they rested, they, they took some time to relax and do certain things, and Scripture doesn't, doesn't condemn pleasure at all, unless it's, you know, excessive, right? There's a place for it. And then the, the last one I would think of, and there's probably some more, um, there's power or position. You know, I think if I just had the power, if I was just in leadership, then, you know, then I would, I would have things satisfied. All those are empty. All those lights, all those attempts at satisfaction are empty. The light, though, is the true light, and that, that true light is Jesus himself. The second thing here, though, is this: the light is shining on everyone. You say, ha, that sounds like universalism to me. It sounds like if the light's shining on everyone, then everyone now is a child of God. That's not what's going on here. If there's darkness, this room were just completely pitch black dark, and you could not see the hand in front of your face, and I just lit a match over in the corner, would it brighten up the whole room? It would. It's simply just talking about, it's simply just talking about the fact that when Jesus came into this world, the fact that he came into the world made uh, what was, was a step of light coming into this darkness. Listen to what um, one commentator says. Um, this would be James Montgomery Boyce. Christ gives light to every man. This does not mean universal salvation or general revelation or even inner illumination. That's a reference to um, the, the Gnostics and the Essenes who ultimately would take this to be um, 
a different teaching. Even the Quakers actually believe this to be referencing an inner light. It's not talking about that. He's simply saying it means that Christ as the light shines on each person, either in salvation or in illuminating him with regard to his sin and coming judgment. When Jesus came into the world, people would have to either acknowledge him as light or reject him as light. And we'll get to that because that fits into the context here in just a minute. So there's this light. This light is true. This light is shining on everyone. And this light is coming. He's coming. Now, when John was saying all these things, actually the light was already present. Jesus was already born. He was growing up. But his public ministry had not kicked in yet. And the light, Jesus, ultimately was coming. Now let's look at what I'm calling the response. How, how did... How did the people respond to this message, to the witness um, of John the Baptist? And really, you might want to say, how did, John, how did people respond to our witness? That's ultimately where we're going to go. Before we do that, though, I want you to notice that in these last few verses, some groupings that John gives us as buckets, so to speak, for us to place his thoughts um, and his interactions with Christ. Notice verse 9. In verse 9, we're told there, we just read it, everyone, everyone. Who does everyone refer to? It refers to everyone, every creature, every person, okay? Now, this is where we need to be careful here. The next word is the word world. And I want you to notice what it says there in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. There is this distinction of the world. Just think of these as separate buckets, okay? You've got, you got everyone. You've got the world. Then next you have his own. That would be Israel, okay? Then in verse 12, you have all who believed or received him. And, and it's important for us to see this. There are these different buckets that have different parameters to them. There's everyone. That's believer, unbeliever alike, everyone. Then you have the world. We'll get to the definition of that in a little bit, but it's not talking about everyone. Okay. Then you have his own, which uniquely is Israel. And then you have all, and those are defined as those who believe and receive him. That's another subset, right? So you have subset, subset, subset. And even through the gospel, when you see these words being talked about, one of the interpretive struggles is to determine what do those words mean throughout the gospel because if you if you get it wrong you have a different understanding of what the gospel is okay i just kind of throw that out there right now and let's just jump into the actual text here and find out well let me actually let me just back up a little bit here again when i first came to know the lord early on a verse like John 3:16 was something that i learned just probably like you did when you first came to know the lord and in that verse here is what it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I was taught that the world means everyone and everyone means the world and whoever is referring to anyone or everyone and all always means all. You see, it gets very, very confusing because that's not what's going on here. 
if you notice in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, even if you said it's everyone there, again, remember it's in the book of John, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, that whoever is a subset of the world. You see? Even though the word whoever can mean everyone, in that context, that whoever is a subset of a bigger set. See, math set theory actually does have bearing on how we read the scriptures, right? <laughs> See, what are you talking about? If you don't know, don't worry about it. Right? Bigger, bigger group, smaller section within that group. We have to see that because that is important there for, for John's gospel, and in particular for John 3.16. Not everyone is going to respond to the gospel. All right? So the question now is this. Um, how do people respond? First of all, um, many rejected the gospel, rejected this message, rejected this witness. And in particular, we first of all have the world. He was not in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So let's first of all look at this word world. Now just think about these two verses. These are probably some of the saddest verses in all of this gospel, if not in all the Bible. That, that Jesus, the word, the light, came into the world, but he's rejected. He entered, but ultimately they did not know him. The world here, as you have there up, in your, up on the screen, uh, is the word cosmos. For those of you who were around when Carl Sagan was around, this is etched in your memory forever, the cosmos. You guys remember that show on TV? Some of you do. I don't, sorry to bring back bad memories if you had that, but um, there are three different ways it's used. Talking about the physical world, which I think is what's going on in verse 9, the first part he came into the world, the physical world, this creation, okay? Yes, cosmos is Greek. Um, then there's just humanity in general just talking about people in general, all right, so it's just all people. And then the third one there is this, this evil system dominated by Satan or the world of men in human society which is now in disobedience to God and under the rulership of Satan. So what we have here, the world that's being, dis, that's being talked about here, um, you know, it is ultimately this, this third section. Because in rejecting the witness, they're rejecting who Christ is, Right? They're aligning themselves with Satan, and they are still blind to the truth of the light. They, they do not know. Okay? So this is a theme in John's gospel, is this word world, and, and the fact that Jesus came as the word into the world. But notice what it says then, later on in verse 10, yet the world did not know him. The world did not know him. Now, this is important. The word know is the Greek word ginosko. Ginosko. All right? Um, and it's a, it's a word that means to know, but not simply to know facts. It is to know by means of experience. Now, friends, hear this. You and I can know fact after fact after fact. I share with you some of my story. As a, as a child living in a Christian home, we had family devotions, and I could, tell you, I could tell you the facts of certain Old Testament stories. But I didn't know the God of those stories yet. 
There wasn't a, an experience. You say, well, are you getting mystical on me? No, no, no. Your walk with God is an experience, right? It is intimate. It is a walk with, with the God of this universe who, is, who came to this earth in the form of a son who is now present with us in, in, in his Holy Spirit and that his Holy Spirit interacts with us and we, we, we commune with him. There is a personal thing going on. There is an experience that's taking place there. And that's just the reality of, of what it means to walk with God. But this world did not experience that. They did not know him by virtue of experience. Instead, they ignored him. They let him pass by. They thought that he was insignificant, that he was just simply another hopeful leader soon to be forgotten. Then there was his own, that's Israel. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And that's probably even sadder than verse 10, because his own people had the data to be looking for him, but had clouded all that data with all of their own stuff that they threw on to their Judaism so that they couldn't even recognize the Messiah when he came because they wanted a Messiah of their own making. So the word, the creator, the light, the one who gives life, went to his own home, went to his own people, but they rejected him. They refused to accept him, and they refused to listen to his teaching or his commands. Again, listen to what Bruce Milne says about this. In spite of all the centuries of waiting for their promised Messiah, when at last he appeared, they not only dismissed his claims, but instigated his destruction. Ignorance, dismissal, destruction was the general response to the light of the world. Now, I, I, I don't know where you are in your relationship with God, if there is a relationship there, if you may be sitting and you're, you're kind of taking in and you're trying to be kind and you're listening and, or maybe you're contemplating what's being said. I just want to encourage you, the light has come into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. And he went to a cross, and he went to that cross, and he hung on that cross, not just because he was taken prisoner and thrown on that cross, but because that was part of his plan. He wasn't the victim. It was part of his purpose to go to a cross and to hang on that cross and be the ultimate sacrifice once for all, for you and for me. Now I'm giving you the nuggets of the facts of the gospel that is revealed to us in all four gospels about who Jesus is, what he came to do, how he did it, and the implication that is for us. Now, fortunately, not everyone rejected this witness. The message is received. Notice verse 12 here. And we see just a beautiful picture of what salvation looks like here, right here in the prologue in verse 12. But to all who did receive him. So, you've got everybody. You've got the world. You've got, you've got um, his own, which would be Israel. Then you have this all who, would, who did receive, receive him and believe him. That would be all Jews and Gentiles alike, okay? Those who did receive him. Um, and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So let's just think now about this salvation. First of all, 
let's think about its scope. He gave the, he, he, he um, all who received him, all who believed, um, are now part of this, this group that are, that are receiving this message. There's three words there that are really three synonyms that he uses to describe this activity of faith. Receive, believe, and then you can go down to the end of verse 13, and that would be, um, or the beginning of verse 13, who are born ultimately of God. So there's this rebirth that's taking place. So this received, believed, and reborn. That's the scope. All who received, all who believed, all of them are reborn. Jew, Gentile, all of them. But it's a subset of the rest of the group. Secondly, notice what we're, what we're told here about the status of this salvation. He gave them the right to become the children of God. So in a world where status was everything, from rulers to soldiers to the working class to slaves, Jesus Christ's death on the cross gave all these people who would believe and who would receive him the right to be children of God. Now, rights are important. When you, uh, well, I, well, let me put it this way. When, when my parents passed away this last year or so, I was named in that will as the executor of their account. That naming gave me the right, as well as the responsibility, to handle and manage their estate along with my brother and sister. It was a, a legal document. And there, what's going on here is that as children of God, we were given the right. That means we are given the, the legal proper status. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and ultimately when we embraced him as Lord and Savior, when that transaction of regeneration took place, he automatically established us as his children, rightfully, completely, and totally adopted into his family. We don't have to fight for that right anymore because that right has been given to us. a huge deal. If you are called a child of God, you are called a child of God by right because of what he accomplished for you on the cross. No one is excluded except the one who does not believe. And then notice the last part here, and this is a sermon in and of itself. The sovereignty of this salvation. We were born of God, told they're not of blood. In other words, natural descent. Not, um, not of the will of the flesh or the decision of man. The idea there is that a husband would decide, I want to have children. The idea here is a sexual idea, that, that through procreation that we would become the children of God. Uh-uh, it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't come through family lines. It doesn't come through a decision of a husband or a father. It is a birth that is supernatural. It means to be born of God. It means regeneration. And we're going to get to the specifics of what that looks like in chapter 3 with the whole encounter that Jesus has with a man by the name of Nicodemus. And so this is just a precursor to that. This is just kind of a wetting our whistle, so to speak, 
But here's the witness. The witness came. He was sent with a message. Gives the message. Some respond by saying, "Uh uh-uh, no way. And some respond by believing and receiving and ultimately are reborn and they are brought into the family of God to be children with rights as full-fledged children, not simply as someone might say an adopted child without rights, but a full-fledged child adopted into the family of God. Now, friends, let's just step back a little bit. This is John, a man sent by God, commissioned, equipped to be a witness with a message that people would respond to. In this room are multiple men and women who are sent by God to be witnesses with a message. And people will respond. You can't manipulate that. Let me just give you some words of comfort. Not everyone listened to John, did they? Not everyone listened to Jesus, did they? So no surprise that if you open your mouth as one sent by God to be a witness and you testify of the good news and someone says, I don't like that, I don't want that, that's and you can fill in the blank of what that is. Don't be put out. <laughs> they did that with Jesus. And if they did it with Jesus, then, then who are you to be any different? All right? But he gives us the responsibility to speak, to testify, just like John did. He moves incredibly in mysterious ways, does he not? Think about how you came to know the Lord. Now, for some of you, it may have been when you were a child. For some of you, maybe when you were older, you know, it it was different circumstances. Some of you, it was when you were considerably older, and God just did some incredible things and circumstances in your life, and you just can't explain how the dots are connected, but God connects those dots. It is a mystery. I I love this poem. Synonymous, but I love what it says. We'll finish up with this. I sought the Lord. (laughs) I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. I find, I walk, I love, but oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For thou wast long beforehand with my soul. Always thou lovest me. That's an amazing thought to know what Scripture says, that you and I were chosen before the foundation of the world. Before the world was even created, God had already chosen you. I don't want to get in all the theology of that. I just want to let that settle. And if that is true, it is utterly amazing. And any steps that I took to come to him were only steps that he was working in me because he had already ushered me before the, cre- the foundation of the world to come to him. It's all because of him. It's an amazing truth. It's an amazing reality. And friends, we get to be a part of what God is doing in other people's lives. 
He's the one that is doing it. He is the one that's breathing into people's lives. Now, he uses people like us. And God calls us to be witnesses. He calls us to speak his truth. He calls us to be faithful to him. But ultimately, he is the one that is at work. And what a joy and a privilege it is to be used by him. Even though we are weak, even though we are foolish at times, sinful, and oftentimes very afraid and ignorant. Did I capture everyone in that? The more we realize that testifying is about God, the greater skill and passion we, we will have to be that kind of person, to be faithful to witness for his glory. Lord, help us today. We have come face to face with a man that you use greatly, and Lord, we're going to see more of that unfolded in your word. But Lord, we, we are many people along the repeated line of witnesses testifying to who you are. And Lord, may we be faithful to take the mantle that you gave John, John the Baptist, as well as the people, Lord, that were there in, in, during the time of Christ as he was um, exercising his ministry that also testified. And through the years, Lord, may we just take up that mantle and put it on our shoulders and trust, Lord, that you are going to work through our faithfulness and our weakness and our frailness and our, our ignorance, Lord. Would you... Help us to be diligent, to do our best, and yet at the same time, Lord, would you give us freedom to trust you even when we feel inadequate. Lord, many people rejected you, were told that they didn't even know you. But as your children, we have been given the great privilege of adoption of being brought into your family and lord with that adoption there is an intimacy that comes with knowing you and lord i thank you for that i thank you that you are not a distant god but lord you are very present with us through our difficulties and trials and struggles lord you are always 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 there looking out working your will taking care of us leading us through that trial, maybe even purposely putting obstacles in our way to strengthen us and to grow us. But Lord, you're never, you're never off on vacation. I thank you, Lord, for that. Knowing you is a wonderful thing. Help us, Lord, to be faithful witnesses for you. In your name, amen.